listening to Make It, a podcast by Bonsai Creative that helps creatives in film get where they're going faster by sharing the advice, knowledge, and insights of professional creatives across the film industry. I'm your host, Chris Barkley. Hey everybody, Kevin Christopher here. Very, very excited to hang out with you all tonight. Maybe you're listening to this today, but I'm talking tonight. Um, fantastic opportunity. Uh, I, like many of you, wear many hats, um, but for purposes of our conversation, uh, I am founder and principal of an intellectual property law firm called Rockridge Venture Law. And we are a B Corp law firm. That means we have a social enterprise mission to what we do. Um, and we're, we're very proud of that. We're very excited about the kind of work we get to do, work with creatives, help build things instead of tear things apart. It's a really, really fun practice area. In the past four years, one of the things I've been doing is building this firm. Uh, and so hopefully some of the things we talk about tonight, some of the things I do on a daily basis and the type of work that I deal with in terms of copyrights and trademarks and artist rights and contracts and all of that could be, could be interesting and useful. Kevin Christopher, welcome to the Make It Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I have to say one thing stuck out there in the intro. You're a man of many talents that wears many hats and nothing truer has been said. And we're going to get into that in this conversation, but to give the audience a little bit more background on who you are, I'm going to read a little bit from your bio. Of course, it's the internet. Things can be outdated. Things can be wrong. So if anything's wrong, you can just chime in and say, Hey, let's that's incorrect or correct me here or there. But, uh, I'm going to read from it. Nonetheless, Kevin Christopher is a corporate attorney, patent attorney and trademark attorney. Specifically, his practice areas include patent and trademark prosecution, licensing and litigation, corporate law with an emphasis on benefit corporations, socially responsible businesses and high growth emergent companies government contracts with an emphasis on innovation funding, corporate and investor financing, and technology commercialization. In addition to his corporate practice, Kevin helps many entrepreneurs as program advisor with AgLaunch, Bethesda Green Hub, CoLab, Nashville Entrepreneur Center, and Singularity Universe Ventures. Kevin is a Berkeley Forum Fund Fellow, an NIH Rad X Falcony member, and Yale Center for Business and Environment Business Leader. He is a Tennessee Bar Association Leadership Lawyer and Leadership Tennessee alumnus and board member to several environmental and social impact nonprofits. Kevin has been recognized as a super lawyer by Thompson Reuters and top business leader by Conscious Company Magazine. And I want to start Wow. First of all, what a resume. And I want to start by taking you to a quote. You said talking to a lawyer is akin to getting a root canal. <laughs> Tell me why it's so tough for people to talk to a lawyer and, and, and what are you doing to, to thwart this? Yeah, we've got a bad reputation, don't we? Um it's unfortunate that there's so much mistrust in the practice of law. Um, but I think a lot of times there's a fear about 
oh God, you know, when am I going to be charged? I feel like this is uh, uh, maybe just an intro conversation. I'm just get, I'm just vetting this attorney to see if I even want to work with this attorney or, right. you know, maybe I'm scared they're going to take my information and give it to somebody else. Or, uh, yeah, they're all kind of, one of my favorite <laughs> sad stories is a uh, guy told me he, he had a law firm working with them and, um, they were working on a case, but he got a call from one of the attorneys who just invited him to lunch. And it was not even supposed to be about anything legal. Just, Hey, you know, let's, uh, can I take you to lunch? And so guy said, sure. Oh, this is refreshing change. He thought, yeah, I'll let you take me to lunch and pan your firm all this money. Why not? Yeah. Um, so he shows up and it's not only the attorney who invited him, but two other attorneys there, they have a nice lunch. They don't really talk about his case at all. And then he gets a bill for like $3,500. And, you know, I think that's, that's the kind of stuff that, um, makes people cringe, uh, thinking about lawyers. And unfortunately what happens, what I see is a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of early stage creatives avoid conversations with attorneys. Um, and, and they get into some hot water. They make some bad moves trying to DIY things. And, and, you know, on one hand, that's awesome um, to try and take the reins yourself and um, and just just wing it sometimes or to really educate yourself. And, you know, maybe you just miss, miss the mark a little bit. But um, but it's it's all of those things. Right. I don't want to spend a lot of money. I don't want to get the run around. I don't want, um, you know, to to feel uh, you know, patronized or belittled and all those things go into the stereotypical lawyer engagement. It's true. And we're going to get into why it's so important and valuable to have a lawyer on your side. Um, one of the things I've said on this podcast a few times is that people don't like contracts. They don't like agreements uh, and they don't like lawyers. But without them, there'd be absolute anarchy. There'd be chaos in the streets. It'd be absolute entropy and you'd never be able to figure anything out. And in my mind, agreements and contracts make the world go round. They, they, they really do. But before we get into that, you kind of glossed over it a little bit in your intro, but I wanted to take you back a little bit to the beginning, give this audience a sense of how you became uh, this super lawyer and, and actually friend to the world. We're going to get into that too. But uh, you've, you've mentioned you grew up with a single immigrant mother. That's right. And yeah. So grew, grew up in Nashville and what at the time, um, was not exactly the the best neighborhood you wanted to grow up in. And now I think it's, you know, you know just like anything else close to downtown, they're trendy neighborhoods, but, uh, you know, East Nashville, Inglewood, uh, back, back in the day, those weren't the greatest neighborhoods. Um, we moved no. around a lot, slept on a lot of couches, uh, changed a lot of schools. And, and so, um, so it didn't have the easiest, uh, young life. And because of that, uh, got into a lot of bad stuff. Uh, and got into a lot of criminal activity, just got into a lot of, uh, a lot of stuff that just wasn't, uh, wasn't the, the, the best path, obviously. Um, but fortunately for me, I had a number of, uh, mentors who stepped into my life at the right time. Um, and a combination of, uh, getting involved in a church and having mentors who really took an interest in me, older male mentors who could say, Hey, look, this is how you know, you should, you should live your life and focus on things and, um, really strive for something, uh, really, really saved me. And that's, I think that's kind of part of the, the, the 
the DNA that I've tried to instill in our firm and, and the, the vocation that I carry is giving back because I know that I would not have enjoyed these successes without people giving of themselves and investing in me. And that's kind of why I like to do all these sort of mentorship programs and, and to really try and give back, um, is because I know that, you know, that's, I've benefited from it. And if I can, you know, help someone else benefit from it and maybe a different context, then that's what I want to do. What do you think the best way is to find a mentor? Uh, it's a good question. Um, you know, I think, uh, uh, I think you got to, you got to look sometimes. I mean, a lot of times, um, different organizations have advertised mentors who are part of those organizations. So I think you can kind of look around and, you know, just see if you can identify with somebody who, um, may have an interest in what you're doing and what you're, what you're trying to accomplish. Um, but I, I think, you know, some of it's just, just fate and, and, you know, the natural law of, um, our ping pong universe. Right. So, uh, I, I can't say that there's a science to it. I could just say that I was blessed by having it happen to me. And so just try and throw it out there for others. Yeah. It's a hell of a butterfly effect. Right. And we have uh, that in common. You know, I grew up in lower Antioch and in Woodbine, not, not the best areas. And I too had a, had a business mentor who came along right at the perfect time um, and didn't necessarily teach me about, money as much as he taught me about how money thinks and didn't necessarily uh, necessarily teach me something my dad hadn't taught me, but showed me and gave me access to rooms I'd never gone into before and would never have the opportunity or access to go into. And mentorship can do that um, in these really interesting and, and dynamic ways. I think about Big Brothers, Big Sisters, uh, that program where just for a day out of each week, you get to see how some other family lives and you find out, oh, dinner doesn't always have to start at 9 p.m. Some people eat at 6 p.m. Wow, what's that like? So it's a a fascinating thing. Uh, You talked about growing up, though, in this sort of uh, dangerous, um, poor poor neighborhood, single immigrant mother, but you had this community that came around and helped you and your mom I'm curious what memories are, or memory, if just one, can you share um, from your childhood in which the community helped you guys out? Well, um, as a, as a young kid, uh, so my mom worked three jobs. I would say there were times where I know that she had three different jobs at the same time. Um, mm. So I'd, you know, stay with a family member or, or something and, you know, maybe spend the night when see her a day or so. And, um, that is, uh, uh, in that environment, I still had an opportunity. So as a young kid, I got to go to a couple of private schools because I had scholarships from the school. I mean, that's an example of somebody providing for you when they don't have to, um, you know, people who let us, you know, stay at their places, uh, and so had a lot of, um, just sort of the umbrella care, right. So like the basic necessities kind of care, mm. uh, I was sort of in an interesting situation because when I was a young teenager, uh, my mother remarried. And so I actually moved from East Nashville to Brentwood. And so, um, 
the the basic necessity stuff was taken care of, but it was still sort of the personal environment stuff is where I really needed mentorship um, and just having positive influences and positive examples of what you do with your life. Uh, and that's where it was um, folks in folks in church, folks, uh, uh, you know, professors, even even family members who who were able to make it out and onto a good path. And they were able to say, look, man, you, you really need some help. Um, and, uh, so, you know, just layers of examples over time. Um, but I just, I, I, I learned, I think I just, I tried to keep my eyes open and pay attention to people. Um, there was a really low point in my life when, uh, I, I, um, was, was not in school and, and just had a lot of stuff going on. And I was working at a restaurant in Nashville and there was a guy who sort of worked in the restaurant. He took me under his wing and he had, um, kind of made a mess of his life mm -hmm. at about my same age and, and ended up with, um, you know, a, a soon to be father role and he just, he just kicked everything. He kicked all the stuff that he was involved in, kicked all the drugs and just totally went cold Turkey and just, just went straight as an arrow. Um, and that kind of stuff was hugely influential to me to see somebody who was able to get off drugs and everything that he was involved in yes. and take ownership of his life because, Hey, I'm going to be a father now. So it's time to, it's time to man up and do something. Um, and so, you know, it's like he, he was just working next to me at a restaurant, but you can learn so much from the person just right next to you, even wherever you are. So, um, so I guess those are some random examples. That's great advice. And just to help the audience out, the audience is worldwide. So we're talking a little bit local here. If you, um, you know, Nashville, most people uh, would know Nashville as a it city now. It's been on a couple of New York Times best cities to visit list and some international magazines best city to visit list. But 20 years ago, East Nashville was sort of an ungentrified part of town. And Brentwood, you heard Kevin mention Brentwood. Brentwood is a is a wealthier sort of more affluent. It seems like every Brentwood is a wealthier, more <laughs> right. affluent part of town. It's actually where we're recording this podcast right now. And um, just I just wanted to add that context in there for the audience that that may not be from the U.S. Um, now it's twenty years forward. Nashville's a it city. East Nashville's wonderful. It's where all the artists and architects and business owners and uh, you know poets and songwriters and actors. It's where they all live. So if you're from out of town, come to Nashville, you want to go to East Nashville probably right away. Um, you didn't mention being overseas for 10 years. You actually lived in central China. That's right. So how did you get to central China? What did you do there? And, yeah. and what was your experience like? It's so fascinating maybe to get the opinion of China from a legal person's perspective. Absolutely. And I, th so I, just, just to, to clarify, I was only in central China for a year. Um, oh, okay. And, and on the West coast for 10 years, but, uh, in, I, so I think this is really relevant. So I taught at a university in central China. I taught, um, uh, sophomores and, uh, because I was American, they thought, well, you should teach British history and British culture too, because <laughs> surely you understand that. So, um, I taught an English class. I taught, taught British culture. Uh, and then I taught a creative thinking class and that was 
definitely my passion project to be able to teach that class because so much of the Chinese education system, and look, this is a biased view, um, but in a, in a one child society, which it's not one child for everybody. If you have the means to pay to have extra children, you can have extra children. If you live in the countryside, you need to have extra kids for farming and stuff. You can have extra kids, but a large part of the population is a one child society. And so there's so much pressure on these kids to take care of their parents when they get older. So, you know, they really got to work hard, study hard, trying to get into school, try and test into a good school and then test into a program. Cause just because you get into college doesn't mean you can major in what you want to major in. It's all about your test scores. Mm. So there's just so much pressure to, to get into these channels of good jobs and success. So you can take care of, you know, your kids and your parents It's on both sides. Um, so as part of that pressure cooker, uh, a lot of the education is rote memorization and standardized tests, you know, tons of people, how do you weed them out? That's one of the ways. Um, so a lot of the kids grow up just in a, you know, memorize huge batches of information type of, um, culture. And there's not a whole lot of creative thinking there, um, in the way that they are educated. And so being able to teach the students, how to think creatively, um, was a real, was a real joy. And, and these issues of artist rights came up because I would challenge my students. Like, look on every street corner, I can buy a DVD of any movie that's still in the theaters in the U S um, you know, and it's all pirated. And how can you build your own entertainment society? How can you build your own, Microsoft or Google or, you know, whatever, when you're constantly ripping off the software, you're constantly ripping off the movies, you're constantly selling everything out the back door on the black market, right? How, how are you going to learn to respect your own rights of things that are made at home in your own country if you have this general approach? Um, and it was, so it was, it was, a, it was fascinating having that back and forth exchange with my students to just get their perspectives on why that is and you know, what's different about it. And, um, but that's really a part of, and we saw what happened, you know, 20 years ago with Napster, like the whole music industry had to change. Right. So it's, it's, it's that part of how do you, you have to have some respect, you have to have contracts, you have to have royalties, you have to have rights or else it's just going to be a free for all. And, you know, nobody's going to make anything and nobody's going to want to, um, produce these wonderful works because you're not going to be able to earn your livelihood doing it. Yeah. There's this fascinating culmination that's happening over there. You have this large swath of the population that's elderly. Meanwhile, you have one kid who has to stay healthy and live. This is the whole Bill Gates thing where, where he's like, you know, we can lower, uh, population by making sure the kids that get that are born live, you know, and live their yeah. long life. So you don't have to keep having kids so that you don't have to have someone to take care of you when you're old. And then you have this pressure cooker, by the way, rote education is the worst way to learn. And here you have the pressure of capitalism without any of the rewards. Yeah. It's which, which I find fascinating. And, and you're right about the IP as well, where, I think I was told by someone in business that uh, within two hours of going to China, your your 
software is is pirated. And and so it's it's this really fascinating, unusual place. And that's why I was so and I still remain very curious about about it, because you look at Jack Ma, uh, the founder of Alibaba. He built this giant billion dollar company, but he got a little loose, I guess, with. Yeah. And, and what he said was, to me, extremely bland. And he just was disappeared and, and might still be. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, there's been like some video of him waving and I think that's been it and no one says anything about it. Yeah. I, I think to that end, I wonder, you know, what your opinion is of how should Western society, and this is kind of an aside and, and for my own curiosity, but in your opinion, how should Western society have responded to the Uyghur incident? I had Uyghur students. And so I heard their perspectives on sort of the, the, the racism and classism within China. Um, and you know, it was, it was sad to hear those perspectives. And I, I guess I would, I would do, um, I, I would use this example. Uh, and it's a, it's a little bit long winded, but I think it gets to the point. Um, when I was over there teaching the, the campus that I was teaching at, they were building a new campus. And so they wanted to move every, all a bunch of students out to this new campus and have a big celebration. Yay. We did it. We built this new place. And so all these students are going to go out there. It wasn't done. It was not ready to be inhabited, to be used. None of that. The infrastructure was just not complete, um, dangerously not complete. And, but they, they moved 10,000 students out to this new campus. They didn't have, any sort of central heating or air in any of the dorms that they lived in. Kids slept in down jackets. Um, they didn't have any showers in any of the dorms. They all went like outdoors. I mean, it was, it was a mess, but the, the worst part of it was that the campus was located on kind of a main highway. Hmm. And on that highway, cars drove without their headlights on at night with the idea that they would conserve battery. And so you did not have a stoplight there or anything. You just had, you know, this campus gate and students would go out the gate across the street to where all the little bars and restaurants are totally different from what you think of bars and restaurants and associate that with college in the U S but they would go there and they would drink and they would eat and they would come back. Well, the first semester, seven different students died crossing the street because they were hit by cars. Wow. Because there was, there were no, there were stoplights or no headlights. There was no warning. It was just poor infrastructure. And I asked some of my students who were, who were part of the school newspaper, like, why aren't, why is nobody writing about this? Why aren't you do like, nobody's talking about this. And it was just, you can't, you know, we can't, if I say anything, I'll be kicked out of school and I'm supposed to take care of my parents. And Mm. there's just a, just so much pressure in China to, to, to walk the the line, you know, tiptoe, walk on eggshells, do it because the consequences are so huge. You don't, you don't question authority. You don't step out of line. Um, and yes, there is corruption. There's business corruption for sure, but it's not the type of corruption that can really get you into trouble. And then anything that's political can really get you into trouble. Um, so you're not going to have, 
civil protesting around anything. And most of the, most of the people in China aren't even going to know that these things happen because of the firewall. They don't know. They literally do not know about the stuff that happens in their country that we know about, um, due to freedom of the press, uh, and, and freedom of electronic transmission. So it, it's a different, it's a different world. I, I, find it incredibly hard to relate to anything that a peer of mine in China is, is trying to work through or wrestle with because it's just totally different. It's night and day. Let's get into what makes you, and thank you so much for that, by the way. Um, I have not heard that perspective and that, and, or I've heard, never heard that story before either. Um, I want to get into what makes you so special because you are a bit of a unicorn in the fact that you are a B Corp and B certified. And for our listening audience, I know a little bit about it, but for the audience, I want you to sort of expound upon that. So what is a B Corp and, and what are B Corp principles? Sure. Absolutely. So a, a B Corp certification is it's a, it's a, it's a trade stamp. It's, it's kind of like lead. You've heard of lead maybe for, green buildings. You've heard Mm -hmm. of fair trade, maybe for supply chains. Um, B Corp is a certification that is granted by a nonprofit called B lab. And it is based upon a triple bottom line approach to doing business. So for 30, 40 years now, corporate law in the U S has said the sole purpose of a corporation is to provide maximum return to shareholders. So that's called shareholder primacy. It applies not only to corporations, but also LLCs, any type of situation where you've got a business that has some sort of passive investor, passive person who's part of the company that, but is not playing an active role, but they're getting some sort of profits or dividends or returns of the company. Mm-hmm. So corporate law in the U S has oriented businesses to act in a way that looks at the near term, looks at trying to make as much money as possible to give back to the investors, to the public shareholders, if it's a public company to, to acting in a way that can't really think socially responsibly, environmentally responsibly. Think about the company as being an entity for the long haul, an active community participant. And so what, what B-Lab certification does is it measures companies for whether they not only value profits as part of their metrics for success, but also all stakeholders. Hmm. So is this is this business valuing all its stakeholders, which would be its employees, the environment, and the community for purposes of, of B-Lab's assessment. So now there are over 4,000 B Corps around the world. Um, it has not really taken hold in Tennessee. Uh, so we have, I think, now a total of six B Corps in the state of Tennessee, whereas just in our neighboring state of North Carolina, in Raleigh, I think there are 52 B Corps. Um, so we're doing a lot. Our firm is doing a lot to try and educate people about how you can become a B Corp, why it's important, uh, why it's a good framework. If you want to operate sort of a mission oriented business or just a business that's impactful beyond just trying to make a lot of money. 
Um, and so that's what we're doing. We're as a, as a, as a law firm, I set out wanting to create the firm with that framework in place. So from day one, we would have this, um, this model in place for how we had policies towards employees, how we engaged in the community, the things that we would think about in terms of if we purchase stuff, where do, do we know where it's coming from? You know, can we make good decisions about the electricity use? Can we, can we, you know, buy green electricity? Can we do things like this where you just try and be a little bit more intentional about how you operate a business? Um, and so that's what, that's what we've done. So we're the first B Corp law firm in Tennessee and one of the few in the country. Uh, and we enjoy working with companies who are pursuing that as well. Um, and we work with companies around the world who are trying to become B Corps or are B Corps. Um, it's a really fun thing to do. Yeah. When I, when I started reading about it, the first thing I thought of was Tom's shoes and there's a lot of cynicism around that now fast forward because, well, not only did, did, did he sell, but the, the founder sell out, um, not sell out, but sold, exited his business. But also it felt, it started to feel like more of a marketing scheme than a donation of shoes. Uh, but you have this ethos, people, planet and profit. So break that down for us and, and, and why that ethos is a, is a good counter to the cynicism people have around these types of companies that are like, buy this and we'll give that. That's right. Yeah. So it's awesome to be charitable as a business, right? So, um, you know, we see companies all the time. We see press releases like, Hey, we gave a bunch of money to these charities, you know, awesome. That's fantastic. Um, but that does not do a whole lot for, how, how the business is actually being operated across the board. You know, what kind of transparency do you have internally? Um, what kinds of limitations do you have on board actions? What kinds of structure do you have in place so that you have a good diverse workforce so that everybody can, um, uh, excel in the company. Everybody has an opportunity for advancement. Um, that you have good policies in place. Uh, so maybe you want to be able to offer good maternity leave programs or paternity leave programs or health programs, do all these things. You, you want to really operate in a way where the people who are working, who are really making the company happen and making the company run, get, get to actively participate, not only in doing it, but being rewarded from it. And so, mm-hmm. That's why this, this B Corp impact assessment, that's what they use to, to judge a company. And it's a, it's a, it's an intense process. It's not like, it's not a self-reporting thing. You don't just check a bunch of boxes to try and get the badge. They actually audit you. They, they, they look at your data. They ask for financial reports from your accountants. They ask for examples. They ask, you know, they want to see proof across the board that you are, acting in the way that you're acting in all these different categories. So one would be governance. So what structures do you have in place to limit the controls that your shareholders have on your company or your investors have on your company so that, um, you know, as you grow, they can't say, Oh, well, you need to stop doing those things. You need to stop doing that one-to-one program. Mm -hmm. 
um, because it's, it's hurting our profits, you know? So cut that out. Everybody, you look, your shoes are fancy. Now everybody loves them. They see the little Tom's on the back. And so they're going to buy them because of that, not because they care about some kid overseas getting a pair of your shoes. So let's just cut it out. Nobody will notice, right. And we'll get more profits. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you want to prevent that from happening, you need to have the right legal structure in place to prevent those shareholders from being able to, to push the company in that direction. So, you know, what are the employment policies you have in place? All those go into your corporate governance. And then you have sort of an environmental assessment. You know, what is your supply chain look like? And honestly, this is where we score really low. Um, we score very low on the B Corp impact assessment and environment because we're a law firm. I mean, most of our, our supply chain is really a lot of digital research platforms, um, you know, privacy technologies, uh, uh, project management tools, uh, database tools. So, so a lot of our work is in the electronic space and that's where we spend a lot of money is on all of these different tools. And there's no real way to buy from, um, a socially or environmentally responsible vendor of these types of products because there's a limited marketplace for it. It's like one place you can go oftentimes. Right. So we don't have a whole lot of control over that. So we tend to score pretty low, um, in that area of it. Uh, and we kind of control what we can control. Um, but we, we make up for it in the other areas. So I'm feeling a little self-conscious now. So uh, a big part of, uh, our company, Bonsai Creative, me and my, my business partner, Nick, our, our, uh, thought leadership sort of category space that we operate in is very much a passion focused thing. And, and for the filmmaker, we do a ton of pro bono work, pro bono consultation. Uh, this podcast has been pro bono for a really long time, for example, um, but we, but alas, we are an LLC. So if I wanted to change, if I wanted to say, if I wanted to call Nick up, say, Hey man, we need to be a B Corp. Mm-hmm. What's, what's the process and where should I focus? Yeah. So for first and foremost, being an LLC is fine. You can even be a sole proprietor and be a B Corp. It's a little bit, it's not exactly intuitive, but there are sole proprietors out there who are B Corps. Um, because it, it doesn't require you to be a corporation. You can still have legal structure in place to cover that aspect of governance, even if you're an LLC. So, okay. you know, oftentimes that's done in your operating agreement or um, you have certain limitations so that you can't just have some passive investor. And with a little bit of a side note, but with the way that the securities rules, federal securities and state securities rules have changed over the last say five years, there's so much more early stage investment into companies like LLCs than there ever have been. Mm -hmm. And with entrepreneurship being taught in grade school. Now there are so many hustlers out there that are, everybody's an entrepreneur now. And so there are a lot of people now asking for money from friends and family and others in a way that we've never seen before. And so you're opening up sort of a Pandora's box there by allowing a lot of companies to be controlled by these early stage investors who give, you know, Hey, yeah, you can have $30,000. I just want a little, I just want a little share of the company. You know, <laughs> I don't want to have a hundred X. I just want a little share of the company. 
Um, yeah, 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 yeah. And so you're, 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 you're getting, a, I, th- I think a lot of entrepreneurs don't really quite understand, like, this is, this is a long, this is a long dance partner. You know, this is almost like a marriage. You get an investor on board. That's a, that's a marriage. You're in it for long haul. Um, and so, you know, that can be a situation where as an LLC, you need to have some protections in place with your articles of organization or your, your operating agreements kind of limit what those investors can do, but that would be your, your governance aspect of it. So I just wanted to say, you know, that it applies to any sort of corporate form, but the process would be to, um, to, to look at the, the B Corp impact assessment. Um, there are lots of consultants out there who help companies become B Corp certified. Uh, we work with a number of them, um, just really, really great folks. Uh, and so find somebody who can, can be a B Corp consultant, kind of help you to understand like what, where are you right now? What would you need to change about your business to become certified? And then you formally apply for certification with B lab and that's the process. Um, yeah. so yeah, judging where you are and where you want to be. I love it. I love it. Don't be surprised if there's a seventh B Corp right, in, in Tennessee shortly. I want to get to this part of your life where, where you work in entertainment, you work in IP and you help, uh, I know you do a lot of pro bono work. You help, uh, a lot of these young creatives out but to do that, I really have to get back into your origin story uh, to where you are today and how you got into that place. Um, I love this quote I found that you had. Uh, you said, I found a way to somehow redefine my path without being redefined myself. And this is you talking about a pivot. And when I told you we would call back to the pivot earlier. Yeah. This is you pivoting after the crash of 2008 and, and changing your direction in your life. So the first question I have is, how in the world do you do that? It sounds very difficult, especially when you are the way you are, where you're two feet in on the things you believe in. How do you redefine your path without redefining yourself? Yeah. And, and, and talk to us a little bit about that, that whole thing where you went from being tech lawyer in California and Silicon Valley and coming back here to, to Tennessee, currently in Chattanooga. Well, first of all, it's a huge compliment for you to pull, <laughs> to pull these things out where in your research at. So thank you. Um, yeah, I, I, I went to law school, um, w- with a very specific purpose. I, I, been overseas in China. Um, I, I then did uh, an AmeriCorps program in environmental justice, and I, I wanted to go to law school to to try and change the world. Right, so mm. um, I wanted to work in uh, environmental law, um, something in in conservation about protecting lands, because that was also a part of, of my transformation of, of getting off of drugs and other stuff that I was on as a kid was, um, getting into outdoor pursuits like rock climbing and running and all this stuff that I'd just never been exposed to. It was very transformative for me. And I realized that not everybody had that, uh, you mm. know, not everybody has access to that. And it's an important thing. So I, I was very mission oriented when I was heading off to law school, had one purpose in mind. Um, and then started law school right at the 
the in 2007, right at the the drop of of the housing crisis when when the bottom fell out of the economy, and so there weren't even internships available in that space. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there were there were no budgets, there were no resources, and so I, I had to pivot. I had to figure out well. I went to law school with a very specific thing in mind. You know, I geared up for this, I planned for this, I saved up money for this. I spent a lot of time in mental energy set on this thing that I wanted to do. And now I, I can't even do that um, because of external factors that I have I have no control over. Uh, and so um, I I went with what was what was there. Being in San Francisco, uh, there was certainly a, still a lot of activity, and especially in the technology space. And so I pivoted towards renewable energy policy and technology and followed that path as, okay, well, maybe I can think about addressing some of the things that I care about through the, through the technology part um, of, of business, even though I thought all business was evil at the time. Yeah. That, you know, maybe I could get in into this space where lawyering around renewable policy, lawyering around helping companies that are developing these renewable technologies could could be helpful. And, and I could find some identity in that. And so so I, that was kind of what I call a first pivot. I pivoted towards that path <laughs> um, and and was able to. um to, to get a lot of really great experience in that space and, and, and to find that I, um, you know, I, I could do a good job in that space. And so that was a pivot where I, I, I had to change the actual path that I was on, envision something a little different, but I still kind of held on to, you know, what, what put me on this path in the first place. Uh, and so as I developed a career in technology law, learned a lot about energy and then in biotech space and just a lot about entrepreneurship, when I had an opportunity to start my own firm, uh, I used everything that I had learned over that time to say, well, look, I'm not an environmental lawyer. I'm not doing the things that I went to law school for. But over the years, I've pivoted to this place where I can still create a business and practice law in a way that is holistic and does champion these different things that I care about and think that people should care about. Um, so whether it's, um, doing pro bono work to, to champion somebody who's been marginalized, um, and injured, uh, and trying to help somebody out or, you know, supporting an environmental nonprofit or doing pro bono work for, for a nonprofit to, you know, help them, you set up their company and raise money and all that kind of stuff. That's where you, you can still go out and make a difference in the space using your same core beliefs and values, but maybe it's in a slightly different way. Was it work that brought you back to Tennessee or was it a personal kids. choice or a little bit of both? It was kids for the, for the most part. Um, so I, I started having kids in the Bay area, mm-hmm. uh, and it changes things. <laughs> it, <laughs> yes, it, it does. It, it changes life, um, out in the Bay. And so, uh, um, so my wife and I had two kids and we were going to have another, and it was just time to get closer to family. Um, and I still had my, I had a single mom I wanted to be able to be close to and, and look out for and take care of. So we were just, we were ready at that point to, to move back to Tennessee and just get closer, closer to everybody. Tennessee is very clearly much better for it. 
let's talk about this intellectual property piece. I'm very interested in this. Um, and for the audience's sake as well, a lot of the people listening to this are in entertainment, they're independent creatives, they're filmmakers, they're in that business. What is the most important action today's artists can take to protect their creative products and other IP? Yeah. So first of all, just understanding what you have, you know, what's your baby and don't sell yourself short on what that is. Um, I think about things very legalistically surprise. <laughs> so I understand things in a way where certain rights attach at certain sort of inflection points. Um, and so I know all those kind of, I, I have a mental map of all those points and where those things originate. Most people don't. And so when you are creating something, um, there are rights just that are attaching and even thinking about it, you know? And so, and sometimes it's all factual and circumstantial, but just knowing that, look, if I'm, you know, say I'm writing a poem, right? So come up with something, I write it down. I write it on that piece of paper it is a protected work. Somebody else takes that thing from me. I don't have to have a, a copyright registration in the copyright office. I don't have to have published it, um, online. It's, it's my, all those things help if you're trying to take somebody to court, but it's yours. Those are your rights. That is, that is your copyrightable work. Um, and that applies across all aspects of creation, copyright, primarily talking about copyright here. Um, but copyright applies to any creative work. So whether it's a performance, whether it's a choreography, um, whether it's a recording, uh, this is copyrightable. You know, you as the developer of this, you've conceived this, you've planned this, you have the questions, this is, you, you have a copyright in this. So sure. just kind of understanding, first of all, what, what are my rights? What am I doing? What rights are being triggered? Um, and how should I think about strategizing around those rights. Um, and we see this all the time where if you're working with somebody else, you really got to draw some, some lines and you got to have an understanding of who owns what rights. So those early stage collaborations where we all want something to be really organic. We don't like a lot of formality to it. We don't like a lot of legal jargon. Well, that creates a lot of problems. Um, a lot of ambiguities and lots of potential for, somebody to feel like they were taken advantage of or to go after somebody else or, you know, um, and, and so kind of understanding what are you doing, who all is going to be involved and what rights can we expect one another to have? Those are all really important things to think about at the outset. Um, this so, happens in still photography a lot. We had an agent on named cookie McCray Kim Cookie McRae, she's she's wonderful, but she she brings up this this issue that's happening uh, with actors where during the coronavirus and during the pandemic, the sort of the meat of it, uh, times were getting tight and actors weren't getting gigs because you weren't able to go on set. And so there were these producers that would come in from out of town and pay you between 50 and 400 dollars to take a bunch of stock photos of you. 
and you'd sign a, an agreement. Well, you know, maybe two months later, you end up in a Trump ad that you didn't want to be in and you don't get compensated for that because you didn't own the photo. And so what, what right or rights does that person have to their own likeness and the way it moves or, uh, across the world? And then I guess the reverse could be asked as well. When you hire a photographer, do you own the pictures because you paid the money to have photos taken of you? Or do they own the pictures because they snapped the camera? Right. So 99.9% of the time, the person who snapped the picture owns it. <clears throat> They're going to own it. Now, depending upon what the understanding was, what was the purpose of that picture? Um, then you may have some license to use it for the intended purpose, but it's, it's limited. If there's no, if there's no contract there, first of all, you don't own it. Second of all, you're, your rights to how you use it might be limited. Mm -hmm. um, so let's say there's just an email of, Hey, I want you to take this picture. And there's no real clear explanation for how that picture has been used. We've seen this happen with clients we represent and other cases that we know about where the person wanting to use a picture or a set of pictures or a set of designs or a set of you know, branding assets never obtained the permissions for what they ultimately did with those assets or wanted to do with those assets. And they were prevented from using them in that way mm. um, because they didn't have those permissions or they had to pay a lot of money because of that. Um, and, and so you, you see that in all these different interactions, um, and we're, we're, that's probably, I, I would say that's one of the most active areas of law right now, because you're starting to see a lot of just, just all the different layers of technology online from mm -hmm. being able to easily take the code of a digital picture or a digital website, use a Chrome browser. You can get that code from pretty much any electronic asset by just copying the code. Um, and, and so you can easily take things and manipulate them and use somebody else's stuff. Um, and then you're on the, on the flip side of that, you're seeing some artificial intelligence bots that are basically scanning the internet for, is somebody using this picture? Mm -hmm. And so being able to easily find who all is using this picture without proper permission and then being able to go after them. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, with your example of the individual, that's sort of a different area of law. And that's, that's more about personal rights, privacy rights, um, publicity rights. That's more personal to the person for whether their likeness can be used in a Trump ad or somewhere else. And that's, that's a lot of that's based on state law, but a lot of copyright and intellectual property is based on federal law and applies everywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's why, you know, if there are any, any music performers or music venue owners, um, listening, this is, this is an area where the, 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 a lot of this is happening. You might have an open mic night 
somebody comes up and plays a few songs that are published and owned, you know, by, by some recording house. And you had no idea you as the venue owner, venue manager had no idea somebody was going to play somebody else's stuff. And then, so you get hit with a lawsuit or a demand or a threat that you're going to get sued because that person sang those songs in an open mic night, they weren't paid. You didn't benefit from it in any real way. Mm -hmm. And suddenly you've got a lawsuit on your hands for $400,000. And this is (laughs) happening all over the state of Tennessee and all over everywhere. Um, And it's all about copyright law because it's all about, did you have the permission to use this? And if not, then somebody's going to make a buck out of that violation. Um, And on one hand, that's really important to all of us creatives. We want strong protections, right? We also don't want abuse of the system. So that's, that's where, you know, we're trying to find a balance. Yeah. And it's going to get murkier and murkier as I think, uh, like you said, technology layers on and different types of technologies layer on from how NFTs and blockchains work and smart contracts work, how that layers on top of what already exists as, as a very murky, ambiguous area of, of law as it sits. That's fascinating stuff to, to find that out. Um, I did hear about a case where a girl's face had been on thousands of ads across the world and and it was all from one stock photo shoot in which she was paid a couple of hundred bucks and she's never seen a cent afterward uh the photographer's well paid and (laughs) and he's basically exploiting the photography that he took um that he paid for but he you know so you could i I see the photographer side of it. it's like you paid you paid her and yeah you guys had a contract that if i pay you this i could take these pictures and own them and i'll give you some proofs and We'll both enjoy that, but I'm going to exploit it. That's kind of how the film business works, right? I own the film and now my job is to exploit it to the nth degree. And, um, but on the other hand, I could see where the, where the client might come from and say, Hey, uh, please, uh, please, uh, do some photography at my wedding. Yeah. I'm going to pay you $10,000 to do videos and stills at my wedding. And then when the photographer comes says, Oh, by the way, I own all these pictures. So, you know, please don't put them up on Facebook. Let me give you a real fun example. It's like, Whoa, I, yeah. that was not the intent. Right. Yeah. L- l- this is one of my favorite examples of, of this area of copyright law in recent years. So, um, NBA, I believe the game was NBA 2k. So, you know, all of mm-hmm. these video games, right. They're Great getting game. so <laughs> right. Yeah. So they're so realistic now that yeah. you can see, so much anatomical detail of the players. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the NBA players on these games, you can, you can see a lot of definition in the tats that they have. Yeah. yeah and so, yeah. so one super bright, um, entrepreneur out there decided that he would go and, and acquire the rights from the tattoo artists who, Tad of these NBA players, <laughs> right? Because they still own the copyright rights in those designs. That's so, amazing. So, you know, I ink you. Well, you have a you have obviously a license to wear that on your body yeah. and to show that wherever, but I still own the copyright. And so somebody can come buy that copyright from me, and then they can turn around and sue the video game because they know the video game company's making tons of money and they'll mm-hmm. pay them 
to settle. So, and that's just an, that's just an example of, you know, who holds those rights and, you know, there may be a license that's given to somebody else, but the owner still controls the cash at the end of the day. The honeypot is the owner. So if you, if you own those rights, that's good. So if you, if you need to own rights for your business or for your brand or whatever the case may be, you want to make sure the only way to get those sometimes is in clear contracts, contracts that use very specific language and it has to I mean, it's this, this gets super lawyerly, but you know, there has to be very, very precise language on how an intellectual property right is assigned to someone else. Like, Hey, I give you ownership of this thing. I don't have ownership anymore. It's done. Can never say anything. I've given it to you. All I have is maybe a breach of contract case against you someday down the road, but you own it. So if you're not doing that, then you're not going to get very far. So yeah. it's really important to have that stuff in writing early on. Like I said, contracts make the world go round. Without them, there would be chaos. And when you don't have them, expect chaos. I, I think that's fantastic. Um, finding investors, it's a very big part of independent filmmaking and independent film production uh, in that whole process. What are the key steps to conducting investor due diligence? We're usually on the other side of this where... Mm we're doing the vetting for investors um, and we're helping kick the tires of an investment or negotiate best rights in an investment. Well, let's talk about that a little bit that I'm an investor. So that works for me. Well, um, you know, there are lots of layers of, of due diligence um, and it's all the stuff we've talked about, right? So like, is there somebody out there hanging out that has rights that we don't know about that's going to come, come one day and upset this whole plan that we have. Mm -hmm. Um, is somebody going to make a big stink one day because there was something that happened early on and it wasn't really formalized. And so, you know, we're, we're going to grow something and make it big. And all of a sudden somebody's going to show up with a claim. Mm -hmm. So a lot of due diligence is looking under rocks to make sure that everything's tight and is what it's supposed to be. Necessary formality, um, is in place to secure that it's a good business investment. You would be just checking all the legal boxes to make sure everything is square for the business investment. Um, and that applies whether it's a, an, an, an artistic investment or it's a biotech investment or anything else in between. Um, for the so person looking at, yeah. yeah, I was gonna say just, do you just reverse that for the person looking at the investor? Uh, the person who's looking at the investment, you know, realizing that again, this is, this is a long-term partner and you don't, there needs to be a relationship there. Mm -hmm. Um, because this person's going to be very critical to your ultimate growth. Um, they can, they can undersell you. They can short sell you. They can stab you in the back. Um, they can tell you that they're going to be a sort of a lead investor and go get all these other investors and they can hang you out to drive. I've seen that happen. That's happened to me. Um, so, you know, having a right investor relationship is really, really important, especially when it's like a champion investor, mm. making sure that that person understands what you're doing, where you're going, um, and is going to stand behind you to get there. Uh, and it's going to be patient. You know, I talk a lot about patient capital because um, patient capital is about seeing the end goal through rather than just saying, hey, it's, it's year three. You know, where are my returns? 
or we didn't hit this benchmark like we were supposed to. So, you know, I'm going to start to get really hot and bothered. Um, so just making sure you have a good understanding of who the investor is, what they're in it for. Um, and then honestly also think, and it's kind of morbid, but like <laughs> what, if, what happens if that investor gets hit by a bus, you know, right. who is the investor who steps into that person's place? And I got to think about that too. You ask those questions early on. Yeah. Um, so yeah, all, all those things are kind of important from the investees side of things. Uh, it's kind of the reason you have an operating agreement and, and a living will, right? Like what's going to happen right. to this business if I get hit by a bus, where, who owns it on, you know, all that stuff. But I have to tell you, it is almost never thought about that way from independent filmmakers. And it's not, it's not, um, um, it's not a condition of, of, of not wanting to, or, or being, um, ignorant, well, or, or being stupid, I should say, but it's more about just not knowing what you don't know. And I think this is going to be so valuable for, for them to hear. Um, are there any other trends in IP in that world around the arts that we should know about that you're seeing? Um, given that, um, there are so many entities that have little pieces of work. We just saw sort of, you know, Google and Oracle battle it out over API, Google one, that judgment, that ruling six to two, uh, what are your thoughts? And, and by the way, what are your thoughts on that Google and Oracle ruling? How could it affect other markets now that that's been sort of a standard bearer for uh, fair use? Yeah. Been made a standard bearer for fair use. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I think that there's, um, there's a, there's a lot to think about. There's a lot to think about on the technology side of this. Uh, I got an attorney in my office who has made a lot of investments in these little NBA blockchain videos, right? Uh, yeah, so yeah, like, yeah, yeah. like top shots. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you, you can own an, an NBA highlight clip, right? And it's just surprising to me all the ways that um, a performance can be monetized. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so a performance or a story or how things can be, um, rehashed in a different format. But, but the, the beautiful thing about copyright law is it applies to derivative works as well. Mm -hmm. You know, so if you have some rights in an original, um, uh, an original state an original format, um, and, and that gets redeveloped in a different format. Um, you know, maybe it's in sort of a, a virtual reality type of environment, then you, your rights are still pushing forward into those new environments. And I think that's really, that, that's something that's really neat. And so thinking about how technology affects how we're thinking about, um, creators rights, um, film rights, because that's, it's not just that film, you know, it's, it's, it's like you see in a lot of, a lot of people don't understand this when, when they're doing say like the, you know, the audible self-publishing thing. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there you've got somebody who writes a story has rights, somebody who reads the story has rights. But when you look at those agreements that oftentimes Amazon is, is saying, well, 
we're going to take rights or the publisher who's sort of the broker for Amazon is saying, we're going to get all the rights and all the derivative works and in all formats. So, mm-hmm. you know, you, you may write a book one day or have a ghost written book and someday you want to be able to turn that into a movie or somebody approaches you and says, Hey, we'd really like to make a film out of this. Or maybe you are the filmmaker and you read a book and you're like, Hey, I want to approach that person and turn this into a film. Mm-hmm. But that person has already signed the rights away to somebody else. They don't even know it. it. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, kind of understanding like that's a part of due diligence, you know, you need to see their rights that they've entered into for how that story has been published so that you, you can make sure that you can even invest in that and develop it that way. Cause it may, somebody else may hold those rights and not even know it. Um, so just looking at it from kind of all of these different angles, um, is just, there's really important things to think about. There's a lot of Google fanboys that are sort of dancing in the streets over this, this ruling. And we had talked about it on, um, a previous podcast about how, for whatever reason, and we couldn't quite put our finger on it, but the film industry ran the story almost as much as the business industry did. And they seem to be concerned about this idea that something becomes common or something becomes fair use that you built uh, simply because it's been out there um, and and simply because only a piece of it was was taken. Um, so there are people on the other side of that that aren't the Google fanboys that are saying, oh man, this is this is uh, this is ominous, you know, because so much of big film, so Hollywood film, not so much independent film, Kevin, but but Hollywood film is is made with computers. Eighty <laughs> percent of what you see in a Marvel film didn't really happen. Mm-hmm. So, so is do they have a legitimate concern here, or is this just is this just filling the filling the rag with some news? I think it's filling the rag with news. Personally, I don't think it changes a whole lot from how we thought about it sometime before in mm-hmm. terms of limitations on using a piece of a larger part of something and to, to what extent is, is that a part of the whole, you know, like, does it, do you have to have a broader sample size? And this applies to music as well. It's been more active in music than any other space, right? Sampling Mm -hmm. music. Yeah. Um, what, how much of something are you permitted to take before you infringe the overall thing? Right. So like it's six seconds of a sound uh, of a sound work too much um, is one portion of a painting too much, you know? So like what, where are the limits to what would be fair use or how you can sample something and turn it into something else. And, and I mean, this is, this is something that, the, the legal space has been wrestling with for decades. So this is just another layer to that um, of what can you take and fairly change and make derivative works or use and mash up or whatever the case may be. Wow. I've, I've been totally educated. This has been so great. And you've been so awesome with your time. I only have a few more questions and I've I absolutely had the, um, the piece where a, a work is derivative, 
I had that totally backwards. I thought, Hey, once you make something new out of it, it's yours. Um, so that is, that is such a great, great education for me. Uh, you formed the only known Grammy Nobel partnership or Nobel partnership for the commercialization of raw space data. Now that's a phrase I've never said in my life. So a partnership for the commercialization of raw space data into music. So please elaborate about that project and and where did the idea come from? Yes. So that was, that was, um, a partnership. It was like a, um, a grateful dead, and a a Berkeley space science Institute partnership Mm -hmm. um, where George Schmoot is this Nobel winning physicist who who collects all these, you know, space signals. um, And, and then that was turned into sort of a performance album. So basically the, the data was converted to sounds and what that would sound like. So it's sort of this musical space symphony that, then went on to become, um, you know, this, this sort of award-winning performance album. It was it's just super interesting. It, you know, it's, it's sort of that conversion of how do you, okay, so now we have a technological instrument to gather data, but then you apply some creative thought to that data and then how, you know, expressing that data in a very artistic way, which was super, super cool. You're a guy who lives a business life, a creative life, an aspirational life. Who do you want to emulate? Who do, who do you who do you admire? Um, you know, I, I think we all have have in some way um, our whole list of self deficiencies, right? Um, and and so. I, for me, like that, the guy who, you know, wakes up every day and is, is there for his family and, you know, gives it, give it his, gives it his best shot in life. And, um, you know, tries to live with integrity like that, that to me is a champion, like that, that's a hero to me. Um, so at the end of the day, that's, that's what I want to do. Uh, and so far I'm getting to live that and it's, it's a blessing. Is that gentleman behind you there? Is that Teddy Roosevelt? <laughs> it is. Yeah. Um, that's, uh, uh, I like Teddy. Okay. So, um, for, for the environmental, uh, aspects of what he did. Um, so, uh, and he was, he's an interesting guy, you know, and, and the other thing I take from Teddy is, um, he was, he was a weakling, you know, everybody has this vision of this, like, you know, robust cowboy mm-hmm. president, right? Like this kid, he, he was sort of like Elon Musk, you know, mm-hmm. he was a wimp, got beat up. He always had asthma. He spent most of his childhood in bed because he couldn't even like go play with other kids. Right. And so that's another thing about like, you never, just because you have one situation in life doesn't mean you're stuck with it. Um, yeah. so that's another thing I take when, from, when I think about Teddy Roosevelt. Kevin, you've been a, a wonderful uh, steward, a wonderful guest, a wonderful person to go on this conversational journey with. And uh, I can't thank you enough for the time. Can you tell everybody where they can find you on the Internet, in life, where they can see some of your work, where maybe they can hire you and work with you, um, where they can find you on social media, et cetera? Oh, great. Yeah, thank you. And completely honored again um, to, to have this opportunity 
uh, rockridgelaw.com um, is our <clears throat> website. Uh, uh, so uh, you'll see some of our folks there, what we do. <clears throat> and honestly, we have some different social media handles. Frankly, I don't know what they are, um, but I, you know, there are links on them. There are links on our website. There, Rockridge uh, Law, Google us, Rockridge Law, Rockridge Venture Law. Any combination of those things, you'll probably get us. So, um, and and so there, there you go. Go find us, look us up on Instagram and all those places, and you know, please stay tuned because we do put out interesting educational content for our view on things. And we try to write things in a way that are engaging to people who are not lawyers. Um, so who may actually be able to read it, uh, and, and not go drown themselves in whiskey afterwards. So, um, so there you go. (laughs) I love it. I love it. We'll leave it at this. Once upon a time, you said once upon a time, you were a poet and a spoken word artist. You, You are a creative as well. And so I'm curious, have you written any poetry lately? Unfortunately, no, I have not. Um, it's been a minute, but just for you, I'm, I'm going to come back and I'm, I'm, I'm going to do it. I'm, I'm going to write something and, um, it will be your inspiration. I, I absolutely love it. How many poems do you have? And, uh, and, and were you on stage? Like speak like, when you say spoken word, are you like, yeah, like a beat poet? Yeah, no, I, I, I did, uh, in Nashville, there was a place right, right around TSU that I used to go and, um, and Tennessee and state university. Yeah. Sorry. Tennessee state university. Um, but, uh, yeah, in, in law school, I published, a, uh, I think three volumes, um, of poems in, in, in a journal at UC Berkeley. Um, and, uh, so I think those are my last published works that I submitted, um, so it's, it's, it's been a little while, but, uh, still in there somewhere. Well, I hope I inspired you to get back into it, even if just for a little while and I'll hold you to it. We'll do a round two. We'll have you recite a poem, maybe, uh, on I'll perform, I'll perform on the cast. I would love it. And uh, I know you don't need it, but I wish you the best of luck in all that you're trying to do because what you're trying to do is really making the world a better place. So keep doing your thing, man. And, uh, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you so much. Have a good night. You too, brother. Peace. See ya. See ya. You've been listening to the Make It Podcast. To find out more information about this week's topics, including links to relevant blog posts, projects, and indie creatives, please visit our website at www.banzai.film. If you haven't already, you can join our podcast community on Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice by searching for Make It Bonsai Creative, and the show will pop right up. You now have the opportunity to support the production of this podcast. If you love Make It and are a true fan of what we're trying to accomplish in the indie film community, please visit www.bonsai.film and click Contribute. Contributions start at only $5 monthly. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at underscore Bonsai Creative and on Facebook by searching for Bonsai Creative. You can provide feedback to us via email at contact at bonsai.film and you can follow me, Chris, on Twitter at Flaming Your Heart. That's F-L-A-M-E-I-N-U-R-H-E-A-R-T. And of course, if you're looking to take a big step towards your filmmaking success, Go to www.bonsai.film 
and click on Services to explore a variety of offerings from keynotes and panels to pitch readiness assessments and so much more. You have everything to gain. Until next time, be better, be creative, be engaged, and thank you for listening.